Father God, thank you so much that we can be together tonight. We just want to lay this Bible study, this time of worship at your feet. When we do get into the Word, it is an act of worship. And we are going to seek out your mind, your will, your truth, your direction for our lives. There's much to talk about tonight, so just give us ears to hear and a heart that's receptive to the Word of God. Let it change us from the inside out for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God has witnessed Genesis 31.1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, Genesis 31.1, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all this wealth. Now, I will say this, this is not in my script or in my notes, but I will say this, that it does seem like the Jewish people get blamed for a lot of things. There seems to be a lot of conspiracies against the Jewish people, like they're to blame for this and they're to blame for that. And maybe this is an early picture of that. It's all Jacob's fault. Jacob is the one who stole everything away from Papa. Well, I don't think so. I think actually the opposite is true. I think that your dad has actually been a thief and he's been trying to steal everything away from Jacob. And while Jacob was a conniver over these last 20 years, being under servitude of Laban, Jacob is a changed man and we're gonna see that in this chapter. He's not a perfect man, but he's a changed man. But Laban is a wicked man. And in fact, when Jacob and Laban had made a deal in the previous chapter, if you were here with us last Wednesday, what happened was they, they were talking about Jacob said, I want to leave. I want to go to my own land. I want to make my own way. And Laban started to try to negotiate with him and try to keep him there. And, and finally, J Jacob said, okay, look, here's what we'll do. I'll take the speckle, speckled and the spotted. And, and he made this what seemed like a terrible deal for Jacob, but what happened was, even after they made the deal and what appeared to be a deal much in Laban's favor, in fact, once the deal was spoken out, Laban said, great, that's wonderful, what a fool, <laughs> as, he, as he was walking away. But then Laban had the gall to go through the flock and actually take the few out that Jacob said were for his wages. And he gave them to his sons. And do you remember? His sons went several miles away so that no one would know what Laban was up to. And the sons had that flock and they had the care of that. But here they're gathered together. I don't know if Jacob overheard this as sometimes we'll overhear people talking. And here's what they were saying. They were saying it's all Jacob's fault, all his fault. And Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, verse 2. And behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. ESV says Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. I'm not sure that Laban ever regarded Jacob with favor but I am sure that Laban really liked what Jacob produced for him. And I think that's why he came across the way that he did. He appreciated the blessings that he got because Jacob was around. But I don't think he really liked Jacob too much. And we're going to see that as we move on in the text. Jacob is going to have to be released from Laban. You and I have been released from the law. Let's go to Let's hold our place in Genesis and move over to the book of Romans for a second. I'm going to make a couple of theological applications just so we can rest in this reality that we've been released. And the first one is Romans 7. Romans 7. Paul is, uh, his subject matter is the law. And that is really captured in the Ten Commandments. We all have sinned and we all fall short of the law. We all fall short of God's commandments. We've all sinned. And here's what he says. This is Romans 7. Let's pick it up at verse 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, Romans 7, 4, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, Romans 7, 4, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, Romans 7, 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Notice that we have been what? Released from the law. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. What does that mean for us now that we've been experienced this release? It means that the law can no longer condemn us. You know that? Theologically speaking, as you look at how you stand in Christ, Revelation 1 is the next one. 
The law can no longer condemn you. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law, because Jesus was condemned in our place, because the innocent one, the just for the unjust, he dealt with our sin to bring us to God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's your standing now in Jesus Christ is forgiven, not because you keep the law every day. Nobody can keep the law perfectly. If you could, you'd be loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every day, and you'd be loving your neighbor as yourself every day. That means if some of you go out to frozen yogurt after this Bible study, you better buy one for your neighbor. And I'm talking about your next door neighbor, the one that bugs you. No, I'm, I'm just kidding around. But anyway, but look, we don't always live out the law perfectly. That's why Jesus Christ died for us. That doesn't mean we don't try to live it out. But it means now we can do it by the Spirit. If you look at Revelation 1, look at verse 3. Revelation 1, 3. If you're having trouble locating the book of Revelation, we'll talk later. But it is the last book of your Bible. I'm just kidding. Some of us are getting used to our Bibles, I know. Blessed is he, Revelation 1, 3. Uh, who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and what did he do? and released us from our sins by his own blood. Now, Romans 7, 6 says we're released from the law. Revelation 1, right here, verse 5, says that we're released from our sins by his blood. And notice what he's done. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. All God's people said, amen. That's what he's done for you. He's released you. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. Now, release, being released from the, the law of sin and death, the weight of the law has happened in Jesus Christ. But walking in the reality of that release is not always easy for Christians. Walking in the reality of who you are in Christ. What scholars like to say is we're trying to catch up practically to what we are positionally. We are trying to live out who, what we are in Christ and how God sees us in our everyday lives. And one of the most difficult things for Christians is to understand your identity in Christ and to really, truly rest in that. You see, release equals rest. And tonight, you know, there's a lot of people, and they're not just outside the Christian church. We all can struggle with issues that we still have and breaking free of even things in the past and sometimes even understanding God's love for us but we have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and this whole scene is a picture of our redemption as well now jacob knew that he had to get out he knew that uncle laban's attitude towards him was changing and this does happen sometimes when things change when the winds of life shift sometimes and maybe you're not doing everything for a person that they think you should be doing sometimes people's attitudes toward us change and Jacob saw that. He saw that he wasn't uh, getting the, the favorable looks from Uncle Laban anymore. Maybe the smiles early in the morning. Maybe he wasn't offering him coffee first thing in the morning anymore. And uh, Jacob knew it was time. Trouble was brewing and it was time to exit stage left. Trouble was brewing in River City, if you want to put it that way. And it was time to go. It was time to get out. Uncle Laban's attitude towards Jacob was changing but God's attitude towards Jacob would not change. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, Jacob, that's why you're not consumed. Malachi 3.6. The Bible gives us a promise in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, and it says that the Lord is the one who will never leave us or forsake us. That, that way we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord will never forsake his people. And it goes on to say, right in that same section, I paraphrased Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. It says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His attitude towards you doesn't change just because you have a bad day, just because you lack some faith. You have been released from your sins 
in his own blood. Do you believe that? It is finished. It's paid in full. But the release from Laban being a kind of a picture of our own redemption doesn't mean that the Christian life is going to be easy. There's still going to be Labans in your life and you're going to have to be break, break free of them. And even when Jacob eventually gets free of Laban, he still has his brother Esau waiting in the wings, if you will. And he doesn't know what to expect of Esau either. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that life won't have its challenges and troubles. It's Laban's and Esau's. Even with the blessing of God on your life, it doesn't mean that all your problems go away. Pastor Michael, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sorry. I know you all wanted the magic pill tonight. Just become a Christian and everything's fine. But that's not the way it works. So the Lord said to Jacob, 31.3, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. And here's the, the blessing of it all. And I will be with you. God said, return. I think maybe after overhearing the brothers talk and knowing that Laban's attitude towards Jacob had changed, that Jacob probably spent some time in prayer. And this is what we should do when things are going on in our lives. And I think God gave him a word. And God said, it's time to go. It's been on your heart to go. It's time to go. And God confirmed the word. He said, return to the land of your forefathers. Return to the land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac. Here's a practical application. How do we know when it's time to go, to move, to change course? This is a few thoughts. First, it needs to be something God has birthed in your heart. It needs to be something that God is doing, not something that you are manipulating of your own, but something God is doing. Second, it should be confirmed circumstantially. If it is a real call from God, the circumstances will eventually bear that out. I'm not saying that number two is always easy to see, but I think circumstantially God will confirm things to you. Uh, it could come out with some practical expedients like your uncle uh, wants your own demise, something like that. That'd be pretty obvious, right? We look for confirmation from God through his word and by those we trust. When Jacob talks to his wives later on, he's gonna call them out to the field and they're gonna bear witness that it's time to go. So you need something that God has birthed in your heart you need it confirmed by the word of God. And you need trustworthy persons around you who, not, who will not tell you what you want to hear, but will actually pray and use biblical wisdom. And that's when you know that God is probably directing your course. Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives us a formula as well. It says, to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our reasonable service in view of his great mercy. And we'll be able to find out as we are not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. You want to know God's will for your life? Have your mind transformed. Be in your Bible and you'll begin to think his thoughts about life and direction. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah, verse 4, to his flock in the field. I think he tried to get some distance from the rest of the family. And said to them, I see your father's attitude that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. Jacob said, your, dad, your dad's attitude toward me has changed, but God has been with me. And no matter how the winds blow in your life, brothers and sisters, no matter if people's attitudes towards you change, God loves you. His love for you is not conditional. His if his love for you was conditional, he wouldn't have chose you. Amen? His love for you is based upon a decision that he made. He decided to love you. Not because I was so lovable, but because God is good. Not because Jacob was so lovable. I mean, if, if God had the pick of the people on the planet at the time, Jacob was not the most, uh, you know, righteous dude on the planet. Amen? He wasn't the man with the highest integrity, but he was God's choice. And the Bible says, for us as believers, God has chosen us. So Jacob shares this. He goes, look, your dad's attitudes change, but God has been with me, and God is faithful. And you know that I've served your father with all my strength. Now, it's always good when you could say to your family, you know what I've done, and back it up by actually what's happened. 
If these were hollow words, if every time the wives had walked by Jacob, he was kicking back and not doing the work that he had agreed upon with Uncle Laban, then they wouldn't have borne witness. But he said, look, you know, I've served your dad with everything that I have. Here's an application point for us as Christians. We are called to work hard. We're not called to work, um, you know, ridiculous hours at our job. We're not called to be a doormat for people, but we are called to be people of integrity. And this is something that I think, this is a work that God had done in Jacob's life. Jacob had learned to work hard. And he said, I gave everything to your dad. And look, there were many days and many nights when Jacob could have said, you know what, this guy is a jerk. You know, he doesn't deserve my best. You ever been there before? <laughs> Some of you may have employers right now where you're thinking those kinds of thoughts. Uh, I'll tell a personal story here because it may have some value to some of you. I've been fired from one job in my life, and I deserve to be fired. And I uh, was a little bit out of high school, and I had grown up in a pizza parlor. My family had chains of pizza restaurants, and I was getting some supplemental income, and I decided to work at this little takeout pizza parlor, and it was pretty much a one-man show. They wanted you to answer the phone, make the pizza, work the counter, and I just wasn't keeping up because when I showed up there, I didn't even really want to be there. And they noticed, and they fired me. And I was like, <gasps> who, me? No, I, well, uh, but I really had nothing to say. They were actually right. And you know what? Some of those lessons in our lives can be really good for us. Because if you get fired from a job, you know what it does? It causes you to do some soul searching. And maybe you have to do some business with yourself and say, you know what? What was I not doing that these people saw that was an issue? And in this case, it was probably most of what I was not doing at that job. But Jacob goes on to say, he says, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. However, would you notice, God did not allow him to hurt me. In verses 4 through 16, the dialogue between Jacob and his wives, God is brought up seven times in the conversation. Each time Jacob points out something that was a wrong in his life, something that was done that wasn't uh, you know, he wasn't treated fairly or well. He always falls back to God, what God did for him. And I think we need to do that. I think when we can, we can go down a list sometimes, and some of you may really relate to this. You go down a list, maybe you come to the end of your day, and you go, well, this didn't go right, and that didn't go right, and this and that person. And you go down this list, and that, that person looked at me with a cross eye and I got cut off on the freeway and I got to the frozen yogurt. They're out of my flavor. There's frozen yogurt again. I must want it <laughs> later, right? And you're kind of like, well, is anything good happening in your life? I mean, you live in America. You did have a car to drive there. You had the money to buy the yogurt. I mean, you want to talk about some good positive things? No. <laughs> I'll tell you later. You know, from the front row here, there was a, a question about a favorite flavor. Uh, it's happened that I've said some things from the pulpit and then quickly things end up in my office. So, uh, but I don't want to do that right now. <laughs> he says, look, your dad's been unpredictable, but God has been predictable. Your dad has changed, but God doesn't change. You know, I look at the landscape of our world. I look sometimes at the blowing winds of uh, even the life of the church, and it's like we want to change with every wind of doctrine. Oh, oh, these people think that. Then, oh, we better change. These people think that. We better change. Look, some change is good, but there's change that's not good. If it's change for the sake of change, and it's not based upon what God wants, that's an issue. And so God says to us as New Testament Christians, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. This is who you are. You've been called out of darkness into light. You are to proclaim his excellencies, but still understand, watch out for your flesh. Because the things of the world and your flesh, they'll wage war against your soul. So look at verse 8. If he spoke, if he spoke thus, and Jacob's now talking about their father, Laban, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke this way or thus, the striped shall be your wages, Laban speaking to Jacob, then all the flock brought forth striped. So, you know, uh, Jacob had mentioned that Laban had changed his wages ten times. And I think this, is, this explains it. And here's what it was. Laban would say, okay, uh, this week the speckled will be your wages. And then all of a sudden the flock produced all kinds of speckled. And Laban went, hmm, a lot of speckled around here. You know what? I'd like to speckle for myself. I'll tell you what, Jacob. Let's have another meeting. Come into my office. This week the stripe shall be your wages. And then the flock would start producing the stripe. And that may be an oversimplification of time, but anyway, that's what was happening. And so each time a pronouncement was made by Laban, it would fall into Jacob's favor, and then Laban would try to take Jacob's blessings. And he changed the wages ten times. But each time, God said, no, I'm going to bless Jacob. Look at verse 9. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. Jacob saw the hand of God and the blessing of God on his life. Now, how do you think the two sisters are going to respond to Jacob? Jacob's saying, God has done this. And it came about at that time when the flock were mating, Jacob's not going to tell about a dream that he had, that I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Sometimes when we're going through stuff in life, we feel like, you know, this person's getting the upper hand in my life, and does God see what that person's doing? And God says, Jacob, I see everything. And by the way, just Bible students, here's a side note. The angel of God, look at verse 11, is God in verse 13. And oftentimes when you see an appearance of this angel of the Lord or sometimes hear the angel of God, it is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament what we might call Christ before the manger. Because remember, Jesus is God and he's eternal. When he became a man, when he was born in Bethlehem, he took on the additional nature of humanity. But he did not subtract his deity at any time. He's God and he's always been God. And here, the angel of God appears to Jacob in this dream. And of course, the angel of God being Jesus Christ, um, would come from this line of Jacob. So there's an interesting connection. And this angel of God says, I am the God of Bethel. Bethel means house of God, which where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. A further um, affirmation of how Jacob was feeling. And so he says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow. Now, if you guys just go back um, a couple chapters with us right at this moment, you remember that this is the place that Jacob saw his famous, what, ladder. And he had the dream, and he saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And after that dream, God made promises to him. God was above the ladder, and he promised that he'd be with him. He promised that he would bless him. He would give him the land. He would give them give him a multitude of peoples from his body or a people from his body. And Jacob, in response to that promise, made a vow. He anointed a pillar, he anointed the rock, and he made a vow. And God says to him, uh, I know what you did there. I know what your vow was. When you made a vow to me, when you anointed that rock, when you signified that place, I was there. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that God hears when we make a vow? Have you ever come to a turning point in your life? Maybe God did something really special in your life and you said those words, Lord, I promise I will serve you the rest of my life. 
And sometimes we've made some big promises to God. And, you know, in our current culture, we do make vows at times, like we vow to be faithful to our spouse. Sometimes we'll vow to tell the truth in a court of law. And we'll say, so help me God. And our society doesn't put much value in that, but God values a person's vow. And of course, we're warned in the New Testament not to make silly vows. Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and no be no. Don't start vowing stuff. It worries me when people, you know, are throwing vows out all the time. It's a concern. Just live by the Holy Spirit, live by the word of God, and let your yes be yes and no be no. But here, at an important turning point in Jacob's life, he made a vow and God heard the vow. And it wasn't about Jacob's great maneuvering or his great work ethic. It was that God was blessing him. What's the message? I'm with you. I see. I'm going to continue to thwart Laban's plan. I'm going to continue to have my hand of blessing on you. I've seen what you've gone through. And I'm going to faithfully uh, finish what I started in your life. The favor of God was upon him and this place, Bethel, as I mentioned, means house of God. It's in the midst of the promised land, and this is where God had made a promise to Jacob. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it says, When you make a vow to God, Ecclesiastes 5, 4, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Ecclesiastes 5, 5 says, It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. He says, do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, he says, fear God. Look, if you fear God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord will keep you from doing dumb things. Amen? That's 2 Michael chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> the fear of the Lord will keep you from doing dumb things. And Rachel and Leah, verse 14, answered and said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house or left to us in our father's house? 15. Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price or he has devoured our money, ESV, or pretty much, he has consumed our dowry. After Jacob was done, the two sisters or daughters said, Amen, Jacob, he is a rascal. Wow. When you have your wives confirming what you're feeling and confirming what their father's like, you know that there's something obvious going on. Sometimes it just takes the first person to say something about the obvious, and then the rest of the people say, yeah, that's right. He is a rascal. And Laban was. Uh, by the way, you just might want to mark in verse 14, this is the first time Rachel and Leah agree on anything. Just a note. Right? They were fighting all the time, wrestling over the husband, over who had what children, but one thing they could agree upon, dad had not treated them well at all. One writer says, the price of the bride was supposed to be held in trust in the event that they were, the wife, was abandoned or widowed. So when a father got a dowry uh, for his daughter, he was supposed to hold that money or those possessions so that if her husband died or abandoned her, she had something to fall back on. And the two daughters say, or the two wives say, he's taken it all. I don't know if this means that he increased his personal holdings with it, but one thing that they knew, what, what Jacob had done and how long he had, had he worked for both of them? 14 years. Can you imagine 14 years of paycheck? Gone. Your only fallback, your dad has taken it. You know, we have families in our world, there, there's something left and it's inheritance left for a child or something, and then families get in all kinds of trouble over money, don't they? Manipulation and terrible treatment of people can often happen over money. The, not, the two daughters knew what daddy was up to. You see, for Laban, it was all about him. They felt more like possessions to him than daughters. It's not hard to see through people like this. 
And family usually pays the biggest price. In fact, I think we could read between the lines and say that these daughters resented their father. They felt like just a possession to him. And sadly, you know, these kinds of things happen in our world. There are people who have, you know, experiences with parents and, and they're not good. And sometimes even kids feel like they're just a problem for their parents. And these two daughters just pretty much felt used by dad. But again, we go back to the faithfulness of God that even when our parents let us down, God is our father and he won't abandon us. Surely all the wealth, 16, which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, here's the two wives. Do whatever God has said to you. Okay, you know what, Jacob? We see something pretty cool here. When God's given you all this stuff and basically taken it away from our father, it's become ours too because we're married to you. So this is pretty cool. We've all gotten payback on wicked Laban. Ding dong, Laban is dead. The wicked Laban. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's payback time. Look, eventually the chickens do come home to roost when people are doing this kind of stuff. It comes out. And so they saw God's hand in it. They saw that God was working and the ladies decided that, yes, we want to follow you, hubby. The Bible says, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so Jacob says, look, we're going to break free from your dad and all that he's done to all of us. And Jacob arose and he put his children, 17, and his wives upon camels he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which had gathered and he had gathered in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. And when Laban had gone to shear his flock, the, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. Now this is interesting because this family has Semitic origins and you would think that they would all be centered around the worship of God, but remember that where the original call came for, for Abraham and where Jacob originally or uh, eventually returned to was the area of Mesopotamia, which was very much steeped in idolatry. And here, Rachel goes in and steals her father's gods. It's always a problem when your god can be stolen. <laughs> you may want to reconsider your gods if he can be stolen. Now, we, do, we have a scripture in 1 Samuel 19, 13. We won't go there for the sake of time, but when Saul was trying to kill David, it says that Michal, David's wife, took the household idol, laid it on the bed, and put a quilt or a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with clothes. This would indicate that some of the idols were large, and, and some scholars that say they were even some human figures, but these idols, we're going to find out in the story, were relatively small. But this may explain a lot about Laban. See, Laban was an idol worshiper. Laban was a man who tried to appease other gods, and we even have seen in a previous study that he practiced divination. He tried to divine things. You say, what's divination? Divination is to try to find out things about the past, present, or future by occult practices. It's something that people in the occult try to do. They try to go behind the veil, as it were. They try to get a glimpse through whatever spirits will give them insight into the past, present, or future. That's what the occult is. And when you start messing with the occult, God says, if you mess with that, it's an abomination to me. In fact, God said, when you go into the promised land later in the book of Deuteronomy, I do not want you to uh, copy or mimic the abominable practices of those people. When you open up yourself to the occult, you open yourself up to things that are occluded, things that God does not want you to mess with, things that sometimes can invite dark spirits into your life. And there are people in this world who could testify to you tonight that they opened that door and it got ugly. And it's a door that you don't want to open. And maybe that's why Laban was the way he was. He seems like just some secular, you know, terrible boss, but he was messing and dabbling in the occult. And so here's what we have now. We have Rachel going to steal 
the gods. Why did she do that? Why do you think Rachel stole his gods? Some people say it would give her a right perhaps to a family inheritance or something like that. I don't know. Did she do it just to spite her dad? Did he see these as good luck charms or of some sort? Did she want to just kind of give a final, you know, ribbing to him? I don't know. But she took them. And it says in verse 20, And Jacob tricked or deceived Laban, uh, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. Would you have told Laban that you were leaving? I wouldn't. And he packed the bags in the middle of the night, and it was like, time to go. One writer says there's a wordplay in verses 19 and 20 that indicate a deep mutuality of Jacob and Rachel in their actions. The word tricked in verse 20 is literally stole the heart of, which is an idiom for tricked or deceived. So the Hebrew uh, text reads, quote, and Rachel stole her father's household gods, and Jacob stole the heart of Laban the Aramean. They both were taking stuff from Laban. Well-deserved, I think, at least in the case of what Jacob was doing. But Rachel stole the, the gods, and off they went. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, and what they would do is when they sheared sheep, and this was the opportune time to get away, they'd often move away from the home, and they would they would shear sometimes huge flocks of sheep and they would say that you'd have hundreds of men shearing the sheep and it could take a matter of days. And so there's a time factor here where they pick this time and he's away and focused on the spring event of the shearing of the sheep and they take off and all of a sudden Laban is told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days this reminds you of uh, Pharaoh's pursuit of the children of Israel in the Exodus. Seven days journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. So they would have traveled about 300 miles, and, you know, they were moving with a camels and caravan. And so Le Uncle Laban got, you know, his, his uh, family, his relatives, probably, you know, uh, armed people as well, and off they went to pursue Jacob and the family. And God came, came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night. And he said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. And Laban caught up with Jacob, 25. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Now the night before it seems like what happened was Laban pursued. He got to the point where he could see uh, Jacob's camp and it was the end of the day, so they set up camp and Laban decided to get a night's sleep. And when he did, God came to him in a dream and warned him. Just like he had done for Abraham uh, about you know Sarai, just like he had done for Isaac about Rebekah, God intervened against someone who had bad intentions and to do harm to Jacob. And it's going to come out in this text that that's probably what Laban was planning, to do harm to Jacob. But God intervened. And so here's Laban, the, the con man who has been duped. What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs and with timbrel and with lyre? Look, we could have had a party. We could have, we could have had a night of joy and singing. Why, oh why, did you do this to me? Daddy never gets deceived. I'm the deceiver, not the deceive-e. Apparently, you're not with the program here. And the two daughters had to be thinking, you know what, finally, someone's got dad. You did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. A little bit of a threat here from Uncle Laban. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. And now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? All of a sudden there's a turn in the speech, right? Maybe one of the guys is pulling out his pistol, showing his gun. We could have hurt you, boy. 
But the God of your father showed up. Hey, look, I know you wanted to go home, boy. I know you longed for your family. I know I kept you for a mere 20 years. I'm sure you wanted to go home. Look, we can understand that. But why would you steal my gods? <laughs> can we get a clarification on that one? Well, then Jacob answered and said to Laban, well, because I was afraid, I think he's explaining why he left the way he did. For I said, lest you would take your daughters from me by force. And then Jacob says something because he doesn't know what's happened with Rachel. He says, the one with whom you find your gods shall not live. Jacob pronounces a death sentence on the one who stole the gods. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now, I don't know all the positioning of the tents and everything, but if Rachel heard this, do you think she was sweating some beads of sweat? Jacob's just pronounced a death sentence on the one, because he didn't think this has happened. He thinks, man, my hands are clean. He's not going to find anything. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. And here's where the music gets intense. Dun, 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 dun. You know, whatever the music would be. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you. Normally she would have risen for her father. For the manner of women is upon me. Basically, she's saying, it's my time of the month. So he searched but did not find the household idols. Rachel was sitting on his gods. Now, <laughs> I want to tell you that there is, a, there is a message here. And I'll tell you this, this is based upon authority, and I'm not just making this up. But there's a message in Rachel's way she has dealt with these gods because basically she's saying your gods are nothing they're detestable there's even an inference that your gods are unclean and worthless is the idea here and so you know he searches the tent and she cleverly you know does what she does and he finds nothing so he comes out of the final tent and you can see this coming now he searches it he finds nothing and jacob became angry and contended with Laban, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, and we're going to read all these verses, and, and you, you're almost going to want to feel like you want to say an amen after he says this. It's kind of like, finally the bad guy gets his in the movie. You ever been there before? Some of you don't want to admit it because you're Christians, I know. But the bad guy, he's been doing terrible things to everybody the whole movie, and he falls off a building and splats to his death down below, and something in you just says, Good! God, <laughs> he deserved it. It's a movie. And Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. He said, Jacob, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. Let's have, let's have an official inquiry right now. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. I didn't even eat the stuff. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters. Can I get an amen from the two daughters? Amen. Six years from your flock. Can I get an amen from the flock? Amen. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. And so he rendered judgment last night. The ESV, I think the NIV says, he rebuked you last night. God has rendered judgment on my side. God has seen my affliction. In the Exodus, 
when Moses is at the burning bush, God says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. And in Exodus 4.31, when they announce what they're coming to do, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. Last night, Jacob says, God rendered judgment on my behalf. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. Oh yeah, let me tell you something, young whippersnapper. And the flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. And you're like, uh-oh. This is probably not gonna end real good. But then he changes. But he says, but what can I do? This day, to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne. Do you think that Laban is just trying to save face here? Do you know when finally you realize someone's got the upper hand and even God has confirmed it, but you can't just let it go there. So you gotta get in a final shot. Everything you see here is mine. None of this would have existed without me. Right? Maybe saying all of this to save face or whatever, but Laban's words were empty. They were hollow, as hollow as he was. If you are around somebody that, you know, just has to talk to hear themselves talk, just know that you can let a lot of that stuff just flow over your shoulder. Don't let it bother you personally. Do you take everything personally? Some people are just hollow, and they just are full of wind, and it comes out quite a bit. But look, this is just what they do. Now, here's what he says. He says, so now come, let us make a covenant. Hey, everything is cool now. You and I, let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set, up, set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban used Aramaic, Jacob Hebrew. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day, therefore it was named Galid. Both in, uh, in both languages, it speaks of the heap as a witness. And Mizpah, for he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. If you mistreat my daughters, if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Isn't this dude amazing? He's saying, look, he's not a believer in the one true God, but he, you know, they they've taken this little, and if you want to look behind me, it's, I know it's something that's been before you all night, but they would do something like this. They would make this heap of stones and it got anointed and it was supposed to be like a memorial, like it would, it would speak of their agreement. It would mark their agreement. And here's basically what Laban says. I'm an honest man, so I know that I won't need anybody watching me, but this heap will be a witness that your God will watch you. This is where Sting got his song, by the way. I'll be watching you. Never mind. Anyway. <laughs> you know, people used to say that was a love song. Every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. That sounds not like a love song. That sounds like someone who's strange. Anyway, <laughs> don't even know why I brought it up, but. <laughs> this heap is a witness, 52, and the, pil and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. We're not gonna mistreat one another. I don't know what Laban was worried about. He was the one that was threatening everything. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father. And I don't think he's speaking of the true God judged between us. The God of Abraham is the true God, but I don't know about the God of Nahor or the God of their father judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and God and called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters 
and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his own place. And this is the last time we hear from Laban in the Bible again. Amen? Amen. God is witness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that through the ups and downs of life, you are witness. You know when we rise up. You know when we lay down. You know a thought before we think it, a word before we speak it. The psalmist says, where can I go from your presence, Lord? I can't go to the heights or to the depths because you are there. And then the beauty of that psalm is that it says that you know us. You formed our inward substance, our inward parts. You knit us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You made us for a purpose. And oftentimes, Lord, you use the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs and the curves of life and even the stumbles to remind us that you are faithful, that you're the faithful witness. You know what we go through. You know when we feel betrayed, when we have Labans in our lives putting their clutches into us, when we're trying to break free. You know when we make mistakes and we feel guilty. You know when we celebrate victories. You know why we do what we do. You know our motives. And yet with all of it, Lord, you say, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will love you to the end. There's no one like you, Lord. You are so good. And we just want to take a moment here just to say thank you for how good you are to us. That you've released us from our sins in your own blood. That you've released us from the law. That you say you are unaccusable, no longer condemned, free in my son. And we're just so grateful, Lord, to know that reality in Christ and to know that even as we deal with life circumstances, you are faithful. So I just pray your blessing on the precious people that have gathered here tonight. I pray you'd encourage them as they go through the struggles of life that they're not alone, that you're with them, and that the church will also stand by their side as best we can. If you're not a Christian tonight and you've not met Christ, now's the time. The witness of God is this, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins and he's borne witness to this reality and it is for us now to receive it and if you haven't come to know Christ, just ask him into your life. Just say, Jesus, pray it right now. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you that you came to release me from my shame, my condemnation, my guilt, my judgment. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and I believe you rose from the dead and I trust you and I want to follow you all the days of my life. Maybe you need to rededicate your life tonight and the Lord's been getting your attention through your circumstances. Maybe you're wrestling with a tough decision and you need more illumination from the Lord. Whatever it is, just seek his face right now. He's here and he's faithful. Lord, we love you and we pray these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.